0: Welcome to a special episode of Eve's Drop on Experts, where we encourage experts to obsess, confess and profess. Hi, I'm Dr. Andy Horver. My colleague Buffy Gorilla and I attended the 2019 International Women's Day event called My Brilliant Career. It was held by the School of Biomedical Sciences at the University of Melbourne. It features six female leaders in the field of biomedicine who speak about their career journeys, lessons learned and advice to younger people. We have captured the event here and we also ventured out into the crowd afterwards to see what resonated with the audience. We bring you my brilliant career.
1: Good evening. My name is uh, Fabienne Mackay. I head the School of Biomedical Sciences for the University of Melbourne and it's my pleasure to welcome you all for the International Day, Women's Day, uh, organized by our school and the university. So welcome, uh, ladies, gentlemen, uh, distinguished guests, colleagues, and also students. I can see many students, which is very pleasing to see that many students in the room. And before I start, I would like to acknowledge the Wunjiri people of the Kulin Nation, the traditional owners of the land on which we meet today, and I would like to pay my respects to the elders, past, present, and emerging, and extend a welcome to Indigenous Australians joining us tonight. Now, what is International Women's Day? Uh, it's a global day, and it's celebrating social, economic, cultural, and uh, political achievements of women, but it's also a call to accelerate gender parity. Uh, there are many talented women every year that are starting career in education or biomedical sciences, and often what we observe is early, at the, at the early stage of their career, there are many women, sometimes often more than men, but then when you look at the more senior levels, then there's a serious attrition, and certainly there are challenges for women to to basically exceed a leadership position, a more senior position, so we really need to, to look at what are the challenges, and do something about it. So the theme of International Women's Day this year is balance for better. And what this means, it means to overcome specific challenges women are facing when they're trying to progress their career. So, of course, this, uh, this work doesn't stop on International Women's Day. This is something that we're currently working on, and we have to continue work on because the fund is far from over. What I'd like to talk about is um, a lady who's been absolutely phenomenal in STEM. And the reason why I think of her, and I always thought of her during my career, because she's linked to my birth country, which is France. So actually Marie Curie, as you can see on this slide, is a Polish-born, French-naturalized physicist and chemist. But her life in research started very. It was very difficult. She was born in Poland, but in Poland at the time, she was not allowed to study at the university. She was denied entry at the University of Krakow. Her father was a mathematician and was teaching mathematics. She was fortunate in a way that one of her sisters moved to Paris and she was able to live with her sister and be supported by her sister to study at the University of Paris where she met a future husband, Pierre Curie, and both of them worked and made an extraordinary discovery on the theory of radioactivity and also discovered the power of radium and polonium uh, through the journey. But despite all this magnificent work, she was also denied entry to the French Academy of Science and the Collège de France, which was very prestigious at the time, still is. But despite all the hurdles, all the prejudice, all the barriers she's had, amazingly, she secured two Nobel Prizes in physics and in chemistry. To this date, she's the first woman who's got two Nobel Prizes and the only individual to this date who secured two Nobel Prizes in two different disciplines, and that's not all. Her own daughter, Irene, was also awarded a Nobel Prize in chemistry. In fact, the whole Curry family, I'm told, had five prizes, Nobel Prizes, including one-piece prizes. <laughs> it's an amazing dynasty. So when I think of Marie Curie, and if she could stand here today and look at the younger uh, uh, female, young ladies in the audience, and if she could give them an advice, she would say, Don't ask yourself if you'll ever be successful. Just ask yourself what's stopping you. So before I start, it is very important for me to introduce our panelists to you tonight, wonderful women. And I will start with Dr. Andrea Douglas. And Andrea is Senior Vice President, Organization, Transformation and External Affairs at CSL Limited, She's a director of Oz Biotech, a director of BioCurate, and the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute. So Andrea, before joining CSL, she was the CEO of a Gene uh, Center for Research Corporation. And Andrea has a PhD in forensic medicine, a master's in health administration, and she's also a graduate of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. So it's a lot done in one career. So very accomplished uh, lady.
2: Thank you, Fabian. Um, it's certainly a pleasure to be here tonight. Of course, one of the advantages of being in a more established phase of your career is that there's a lot of material to, to reflect on. Um, and I guess when I reflect on my career, um, it's what's really poignant to me is I never had a plan, never had a plan. It was not a path that I mapped out. Um, and I know now that, that that's okay. And and when I reflect on my career, I look at it as a, with, with a series of, um, of really key pivotal points in, in my career that, that have led me to where I am today. So I'm going to take you through four of those of those pivotal points. Um, and really my reflection is that either creating opportunities or making the most of opportunities that come along have really what's has really gone to creating the richness that I've, that I've had in my career and the opportunities that, um, that I've um, really taken along the way. Um, so the first pivotal point for me was leaving the lab. Um, I was a postdoctoral scientist at the Walter Eliza Hall Institute, um, and I left the lab and, and took a position as business manager and then um, CEO of the Gene CRC, um, which was like a, a small biotech, but really with an academic um, industry interface. Um, and it was a really big move uh, for multiple reasons, uh, not the least of which is, you know, I've written a few quotes here, um, was your PhD a complete one? Waste of time. Um, it's the easy way out, uh, going to the dark side. Um, I really, literally, had someone tell me that my IQ would drop by at least thirty when I left the lab. Um, so you know that always makes the the stakes a little bit higher. Um, but in all seriousness, I think the two reasons that um, that I left the lab was. The first one, which is a little bit negative but also quite realistic, um, I was a postdoctoral scientist with Doug Hilton and I knew I would never be a Doug Hilton and I compared myself to people you know, of the, the scale and cal- calibre of Doug and, and people that I'm sitting here with and I knew that that was not my absolute strength. Um, but what I did know is that I'd had a taste of translation and, and I was working on breast cancer research with a translational component and, and I knew that I wanted more. So, so they were really the drivers for me. Um, and that seven years that I had at the, at the Gene CRC, I, I have to say still, is the most intense period for me in my career in terms of learning. You know, I learnt so much in that period and, um, and, and a lot of what I've built since then is, be, is because of that first step out of the lab. Uh, The second pivotal point for me was having a child, Um, and that's 16 years ago now. Um, And you might say, well, why is having a child a pivotal point in your career? Um, It was, and it it still is. Um, You know, I think having a child really taught me For me, that in in order to have uh, a full and and enriched life, I wanted and needed work and I wanted home. Um, And I think still to me that balance, which is different at different times of my career and in my life, is really important. That I like to see myself as a full person, not a work person and then a home person. I I think it really taught me that. Um, I think the other thing that having a child taught me is to be damn productive and efficient, you know, there's nothing like having 30 minutes in between nappy changing or feed and you know and sleep cycles to be really efficient, or a 5 p.m. deadline. You know, before having children, you can just keep going and going until you finish what you're doing. But that certainly, for me, really taught me about uh, productivity and, and efficiency, with with you know lots of other things as well. Um, The third pivotal point for me was really moving into pharma or or industry proper from from that small biotech type of organisation. Um, and into a larger organisation where there was really specialised roles. Um, it gave me a real appreciation of, of the skills and the muscle, actually, in terms of resources and, and financial muscle it takes to transition an idea from the lab um, into the clinic and then ultimately to patients and, and the marketplace. So you know, I've, I've learnt really different things at, at each phase. Um, I've also learnt a lot um, at CSL in that big organisation about management and leadership and about getting the most out of individuals, not necessarily because of their direct experience or the past jobs that they've had, but because of their skill set. I think it's really important that we give people opportunities based on what we think they're good at and what their skill set is, not necessarily just about their, their career path to date. Um, and I think I've also learned about the importance of teamwork working in a big organisation and also the importance of knowing in an organisation how to get things done and that internal stakeholders and networks and, and how important that that is. Uh, My final uh, pivotal point uh, was about a year ago, uh, and has has led to the the current role that I have, which which is leaving Um, R&D. My current role I've been in for about four weeks' time, uh, and as you heard, I'm now leading a a transformational effort in a global 22,000 people organisation. which is not where I would have mapped my career at all. Um, But about a year ago, the CEO, we're developing our 2030 strategy for for CSL, and and the CEO called on his leaders to nominate about 30 people to come to this design workshop that would say, we know what our 2030 strategy is, what type of organisation do we need? And I wasn't on the list. My boss at the time didn't put my name forward. Um, but I knew who else was there, and I knew damn well that I could contribute. Um, and in one of my not so finest moments, because I was probably too emotional uh, when I spoke to my boss, I had confidence in myself, and I said to him, I need to be there. And he came back to me the next day and he said, Not because you're upset or emotional, because I've thought about it and you can contribute. Um, and I went to that that um, design charrette that they called it. And, um, and I was really effective and I made a difference and I ended up leading a work stream over the last year. And that's led to me now in the whole organisation uh, leading what we as an organisation want to look like. And I think what I really learned from that is have confidence in yourself. And, and I think as a female, we're probably not as good at that as, as males are. And I think that's something that I've really learned from, from that last experience. Um, so I think... Based on those pivotal points, the four things for me in my career is really seek, create and look for opportunities and sometimes they're left field opportunities and and that's okay. Um, Know your unique strengths relative to other people I think is really important. Um, Have confidence and trust yourself. Um, and wor- what, work out really what's important for you in your life. Don't look at others and say, well, they do this or she does that and maybe I should be reflecting them. Work out what's really important for you um, and really strive. And it's not, you know, sometimes it's going to be really challenging, but really strive to, to, to try to create um, what's really important to you in your life.
1: So thank you. Uh, the next beautiful and very usually accomplished lady is Professor Catherine Knowles. Catherine is director of the Murder Children's Research Institute and the David Danks Professor of Child Health Research uh, at the University of Melbourne. Uh, she's, of course, a UDC alumni. And, uh, and also a global leader in genomic medicine. Uh, Catherine was awarded this year the Companion of the Order of Australia, and really this recognizes a service to medicine in the field of neuromuscular and neurogenetics research, pediatrics, and child health as a clinician and an academic. Now, it's not just all that. She's also the inaugural uh, fellow of the Australian Academy of Health Medical Science, one of them, And she was also a past recipient of the Ramachuti Medal for Research Excellence and the GSK Award for Research Excellence. And I could go on. That's only, you know, some of the many, many achievements that uh, I have on Catherine.
3: Uh, It's great to be here tonight. And I I think one of the greatest fun of this was was trying to think how you condense and talk about... um, your career or the balance that you try to achieve um, in in a few minutes, and I then decided to to boil this down to to five words that I talk about, um, which is passion, serendipity, choice, collaboration, and mentorship. Now, when I was young, um, Andrea started her talk by saying that um, she never had a plan. I look back and I think, I always had a plan. Um, I think it's a very boring part of my personality, um, is that I always like to function on a, a, you know, planning two years ahead or having a five-year plan. Um, And what I'm very happy to say is that over the years I've deviated from those plans, um, which have given me some of the best experiences. But I think the first point in terms of your career and whatever path you choose is the most important thing about it is being passionate about it. If you're thinking about what you do and, you know, I talk to the young people of today and you go, what do you want to do? And they go, no, I don't know. I just go find something that you're passionate about, that you love and that you're interested in. And you can change it over time, but it's so important to do something you love because you're going to do it for the rest of your life. Um, For me, um, going into medicine, which is sort of something I always wanted to do, and I got the marks, which unfortunately I think is what drives a lot of people to do medicine, Um, I actually found that it was my year, I I was getting a bit sick of studying, Um, I went straight into an undergraduate course in those days, and I took a year out to do research, Uh, it was a BSc Med in those days. And I chose it in an area that just I wasn't yet passionate about, but that fascinated me, which was birth defects, which is weird. But I I just found it quite fascinating to... We learned about embryology and development and to think how development goes wrong. That year in research uh, just captivated me because I, I learned about instead of just studying and being spoon-fed, you could go and find out stuff for yourself and you had an autonomy and a control over your time and you could find stuff you were interested in and become quite passionate about it. And I must say I still feel very much about research um, as I did then today. The next thing I found that I was passionate about was after I finished my research year and went and did um, the next year of medicine and I was much more enthusiastic about what I was doing and then I did paediatrics and just working with kids um, and the, again, I think that fascination with development and the rare disorders that happened in children really drove me. And then I became quite attracted to neurology, I think because the head of neurology could do ventriloquism with a Donald Duck voice, which I thought was incredibly (laughs) clever, Um, but was also a very funny, charismatic group of people, which I think is another thing that you do. You're attracted to the people that you'd like to grow up to be. So what I took away from that is I sort of picked a few areas that I I became really interested in, uh, and I'm still interested in all those areas today. And another piece of advice I would give you um, is that, um, which Andrea has touched on as well, is if you're interested in something, if you're passionate about something, go and pick an important person and tell them about it and ask them to help you. Because they always will, I mean, unless they're... Not great people, but most people in leadership I was going to say something different, but I, I'm um, it's being podcast uh, is that uh, it, most people have such generosity of spirit, and I'm always just delighted when someone comes and asks for my help and wants my guidance, that um, I think you find people will help you. My next word is serendipity or the unexpected and so despite all my great plans uh, I, I think some of my pivotal points in my career have been related to the unexpected and following on from the unexpected and I, I think the biggest part of that was I planned two years ahead because when I was doing my neuro- paediatric neurology training uh, in those days you had to do what we called the BOSCB which is you've been overseas and then you came back and so I'd planned and two years before I needed to do that, I actually went and um, did a series of interviews that I'd organised around the US in terms of doing fellowships in neurology. And so I'd lined up to go to Boston, to Columbia Presbyterian in New York, to Johns Hopkins and to Houston. Meanwhile, while I was doing my neurology training, I'd also set up a a neurogenetics clinic and focused on a particular disease um, that I was became very passionate about, and I still work on it today, called Neurofibromatosis. And I'd set up a become a pen pal where you actually, you know, you used to write in those days, there was no such things as email, um, to a neurogeneticist in Boston um, that helped me, gave me great advice over a year or so about how to set up my clinic. And so I turned up in Boston, I went and did my interviews that morning, nailed it, I thought, um, to get a a neurology fellowship, and then I met up with um, Bruce Korf, who's a neurogeneticist, um, for lunch. And we're sitting and chatting over lunch, and he went, why are you coming to do neurology? You've done neurology. Why don't you come and do genetics? And I thought, it's a good idea <laughs> and he said okay I'll set up some interviews this afternoon so I did a series of interviews that afternoon went off and did interviewed for the rest of the neurology jobs but it really stuck in my mind I hadn't thought of that of course I'd done neurology why not explore this other area I was very interested in. And when I think today of all the work that I'm doing in genetics and genomics, I thank God that I'm qualified in the area. Um, but I think that was a really a major change in path that I made just in the middle because it seemed like a very good idea. I think the next point I want to talk about is choices. And I think we all have these pivot points in our careers um, where you, you're presented with two different paths. And I think the the most recent of that for me and probably one of the most difficult decisions I made uh, was the decision to come to Melbourne because I was happily ensconced in Sydney. I was like the pin-up girl for work-life balance in Sydney because I'd sort of organised my... um, I was the chair of paediatrics up there and I had a research institute and I'd sort of organised my environment to suit me over the years. And... Then the opportunity came up um, of the job to run the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. And I thought, yeah, I'll go and have a look. Um, But I came down, and I I knew this place, but then as I spent more time there, I just sort of went back home and I just said, I I really want this. I can see these immense possibilities, even though it meant sort of uprooting myself, my family, telling everyone that I worked with that I was was going to leave, which I had to do, and I eventually got that job. It was a difficult choice because it was an uncomfortable choice and I, I think it probably took me about five years to settle in um, to Melbourne um, but it's a choice I never regret because I think it's, uh, it's great to be challenged, it's great to try something new uh, and it's great to be um, scared about doing that. So my other piece of very wise advice would be don't take the path, don't always take the path of least resistance. I think sometimes the path of greatest resistance um, is much more rewarding. Finally, I'd like to talk about two things that I found incredibly important in my career. And I, when I then thought about it, both relate to the importance of the people you work with. And, and so, my first piece of advice is life is too short to work with difficult people. Don't. I'll just leave that there. I can tell you some stories, but the most joy that I get um, in in my job, you know, through from when I was doing basic neuromuscular research um, up to now, where we're engaged in national and international networks is how much fun it is to work with other people that are as passionate about the same things as you are. And I think collaboration uh, and working with other people is one of the great joys um, that we have in the field of of medical research in particular. And it is fun. They become lifelong friends. It's enjoyable. You find people with the same quirky sense of humour that know the same things that you do. Uh, And so... I. It's also about being generous as well, and there's enough for all of us to do. And really, sort of talking with people and making sure that you're sharing and that you know that collaboration is a two way street is extremely important. And collaboration then leads and is part of um, the most one of the most important things, which I think is mentorship. And so, another very very good piece of advice I give to the young people is always be kind to the young and unimportant because one day they'll probably be much more important and they'll remember you. But apart from that as a negative driver, I think that uh, if we all think back, and I can think back to my mentors, the head of neurology um, that first took me on at the children's hospital in Sydney Bruce Corf, who gave me that great piece of advice, and was just visited Mcri as it's one of our major international guests um, a couple of months ago, uh, is that I look back on those people that have influenced my life, or actually taken the time to talk to me when I was young and unimportant, and they still mean a lot to me today. And I, you know, so I talked to my original mentor on Sunday this week as he was just ringing up for a bit of a chat. Um, I think that I then think of all the people I've mentored over the years as my students or my postdocs. Um, and uh, I think of them as my children. I'm as proud of them and their achievements um, as I would be of an own, my own member of my family. So I think mentorship and looking after others, and you can do it at every level, whether it's younger kids in your school, um, whether it's um, uh, you know young students coming into your lab as a postdoc, and at every level. And today I get to mentor um, some great young leaders as well. So I think... Probably if I had to pin down one thing I've enjoyed the most in my career, it's um, that engagement with others, but also um, getting people addicted to research and breeding that next generation. Thank you.
1: The next uh, phenomenal lady tonight is Professor Ingrid Scheffer. Paediatric neurologist and professor at the University of Melbourne, Austin Health, and the Wild Children's Hospital. She's a physician scientist Ingrid has been a leader in the field of epilepsy genetics for more than 20 years. Uh, she was awarded the L'Oreal UNESCO Women in Science Laureate for Asia-Pacific uh, in 2012. And she received an order of Australia in twenty fourteen, and that's not all again. She is a Fellow of the Australian Academy of Science, again also a founding Fellow of the Australian Academy of Health and Medical Science, and extraordinarily she's also a Fellow of the Royal Society, which is an amazing international recognition for the working grid has, has done over the years.
4: Well, I'll start by saying Kathy is an impossible act to follow, <laughs> always positive and upbeat, and my message is a reality check, but I hope you hear exactly the same messages from, I think, all of us. So firstly, Fabian, thank you uh, for the honour of joining these incredible Women with Brilliant Careers. As for me, the last thing I ever thought my career would be called was brilliant, and on reflection, I did not set out with that in mind. I set out with the altruistic aim of helping people. But looking after patients drove my curiosity to ask scientific questions because I wanted to better understand their diseases. And the exciting outcome from that is that my research has allowed me to make an impact on people all over the world with epilepsy. So I'd like to focus on three main themes, resilience, gender styles and bias, and most importantly, my career mantra, which is, enjoy the journey and don't be so worried about the end point. So life is not straightforward, and that's for all of us, but my career has faced countless hurdles, some of which have certainly been related to my gender. Overcoming challenges requires resilience. It's how you respond to these hurdles that actually defines you. Let's start with my training in paediatrics. It was far from straightforward. I had a year in exile in Adelaide, due largely to my political naivety, and then I failed my first oral exam for the specialist exams, which is the first thing I'd ever failed in my life. Then I wanted to train in paediatric neurology in Melbourne, but that was not possible, as I was the first woman in an all-male world. Uh, indeed, to be a neurologist in this town, and Kathy was north in Sydney, required a uniform of a navy jacket, grey trousers, and a Y chromosome. <laughs> but I was unfortunate enough to go to Greater Women's Street Hospital in London, and that gave me a far more worldly perspective than if I had stayed in Australia. So when I returned, there was also no consultant position, and I had to map myself out a career while doing my PhD, including a year full time of full time work for free. Thus, from starting medicine to completing my PhD only took a cool 21 years. And if you think about Kathy, she had a plan, she went straight for it. Mine was a bit like this. Now, that was a while ago, and the issues around women's careers still remain in 2019. Many of my male colleagues feel that gender inequity is no longer an an issue in our developed world, but whilst it has improved undoubtedly, it is just far more subtle. We still see conferences advertised today with entirely male speakers, male chairs, and not a woman in sight. There's no doubt that men and women have different styles, and that's a wonderful thing and not something I would want to change. But at a risk of making gross generalisations, our fundamental differences in style, and Andrea alluded to this as well, mean that we often present ourselves less confidently than men and we promote ourselves less well. This means that we can be overlooked for a role, or we can manage a situation quite differently to our male peers. Now, I love running my group with my closest male collaborator. In both our research and clinical meetings, we have very different styles. We bring different perspectives and different solutions to a problem. We both feel that the outcome of our combined leadership is far greater than the sum of its parts, but the price I had to pay was that I lived for a long time in the shadow of a great man. It took many years for me to be recognised as an independent thinker, and I have to say that happened much earlier overseas than in Australia. So then it was especially meaningful when in 2014 we were co-recipients of the Prime Minister's Prize for Science. Now I wanted to touch for a moment on attitudes The way we approach life is key. At the risk of giving unwanted advice, younger people sometimes feel they have a right to a smooth career path where each step seamlessly follows the next. This belief is fundamentally flawed. When things don't go according to plan, such as not getting the job you want or your paper or grant are rejected, this allows serendipity to prevail. And this means you can take unexpected opportunities that arise, and these often lead to the most surprising and fulfilling career outcomes. For example, I never thought I'd be any good at research, but when the fellowship I'd arranged in Melbourne fell through, it meant I was lucky enough to embark on a PhD in clinical research, which turned out to be both my unexpected forte and my passion. Now, I've mentioned a few of the hurdles in my career, but there've also been lots of high points along the journey. One highlight was the L'Oreal UNESCO Woman in Science Laureate in 2012, and this led to my face being plastered across many billboards in Parisian airports. Now, this required multiple makeovers, and and L'Oreal ensured that I was made over to within an inch of my life. This meant having my fringe combed at least 60 times in one hour for one photo, and that has to be deemed a life-threatening experience. (laughs) The awards I've received have undoubtedly changed my career trajectory, but they have not changed the reason for what I do, the wonderful paradigm-shifting outcomes I've witnessed, and the impact on families dealing with epilepsy around the world. I particularly love seeing my work translate to help my patients. Two weeks ago at 6 pm after a long and exhausting clinic, I rang Kate, the mother of Jane. I've looked after Jane for 20 years and she has severe intellectual disability and severe epilepsy. I said, I've got good news, Kate. We have the answer, the cause for Jane's problems. Kate replied, I never thought I'd hear that in my lifetime, Ingrid. Hearing a mother say that makes it all worthwhile. Thank you.
1: And last but not least is Professor Kenta Subaru. And Kenta is the director of the World Health Organization Collaborative Center for Reference and Research on Influenza at the Peter Dowdy Institute and a professor at the School of Biomedical Science. So, Kenta is a virologist and a physician with specialty training in pediatrics and pediatric infectious disease. Her research focuses on newly emerging viral disease of global importance, and including pandemics of influenza, severe acute respiratory syndromes, and Middle East respiratory syndromes. She's also a fellow of the American Academy of Microbiology, and she had a very distinguished career in the United States National Institute of Health prior to coming to Melbourne.
5: So thank you, Fabienne, for the um, invitation to be on this panel. Um, I'm a relative newcomer to Australia, so it's a real privilege to to be on a panel with with all of you. Um, I've now lived in four countries and three continents, so feel like a bit of a a global citizen. I was born in the US, grew up in India, went to medical school in India um, at a rival school for our deans. And I got my advanced clinical training in pediatrics and infectious diseases in the US. And then I went on to a research career in biomedical sciences in the US and was recruited to the Doherty Institute about two years ago. Um, So my career has actually evolved very differently from what I expected at 16. Um, I started medical school and trained um, as a clinician, fully expecting to practice medicine. But during my fellowship training, I went to a virology lab and just loved it. Um, I started a faculty position that was sort of a typical academic career combining clinical medicine with research, um, and I realized I needed more research training. So that was my first crossroads, trying to decide whether to go get some more training, to um, give it up and be a, a clinician, or go into clinical research, so one of those three. I decided um, that to go for more training and went to the National Institutes of Health for a postdoc. So there are always pros and cons to choices, and medicine is very pyramidal. And by the time I'd finished PEDS and infectious diseases and everything, I'd been in clinical medicine for 12 years of training. And I'd finally crept to the top of the, of the heap Um, and was finally in a full-pay job, Um, and to give that up and go to a lab and be taught how to pipette and to clean up after myself and be really the most inexperienced person in the the room was quite humbling. Fortunately, my mentor at the NIH was a physician scientist who was extremely patient um, uh, while I got up to speed, and we have remained in touch over all these years. So I went to the NIH expecting to spend about three years there, ended up spending about five, and really still intended to go back out into an academic um, research career. But I've ended up with a career in full-time in research. I don't practice medicine anymore. Um, And I must say, when I go to hear a really fascinating um, clinical seminar, I think, oh, there was a reason I liked that. But for for the most part, I don't miss clinical medicine on a day-to-day basis. So I've been phenomenally lucky in the professional opportunities that have come my way. Um, I've been in the right place at the right time more than once. So I was at the Centers for Disease Control in the U.S. um, for about three months in a new job when the first bird flu, H5N1 virus, was isolated in Hong Kong. So my lab characterized that virus, and it really changed the um, trajectory of my career because I used to work on human influenza, and now I switched to working on avian influenza. Now, some years later, um, I was back at the NIH now running starting a new program to develop pandemic influenza vaccines, and SARS emerged in in Asia. Um, and I offered to work on SARS because I was experienced in working in a high containment lab, and I was a I'm a virologist. Um, and with the stroke of a pen, the um, director of our institute doubled my budget and doubled my space, and I had a new program. So for five years I worked on SARS and had a you know, very productive five years. So being at the right place at the right time was, was important. So what were some of the lows and challenges? Um, so others have talked about this. There's certainly sexism and bias um, that I've encountered, some of it systematic and some of it unconscious. There's the two-body problem, Um, that can be very challenging, um, that I have personal experience with. If you want to move, you have to find two careers, um, usually independently. My husband and I have usually taken turns um, finding jobs, although I must admit to having hijacked it more than once. (laughs) So when jobs don't turn out to be what was promised can be very distressing, and it does happen, um, and you sort of need to learn the tools of how to deal with that. Um, women don't do terribly well with salary negotiations and equity. I don't know if salary equity is a is a problem in Australia, but it certainly is in the United States. And then one of the other things I reflect on is trying to find, make sure that your boss will support you, um, not just pay lip service to it. So career highs, on the other hand, I think sexism has decreased since the 1980s when I first hit the job market. Um, there are many more opportunities available. And in the West, we have the luxury of being able to change career paths. What you choose at the get-go is not necessarily what you'll end up for the rest of your life. If you want to make a change, we do have the luxury of, of change. Another um, thing that is ver- has been very positive and affirming for me is women supporting women. There are women who have written letters to my bosses unsolicited about a talk I've given at a conference, or something like that, that's been wonderful. So I've had the good fortune, a lot of good fortune on the way. Um, I grew up in an academic family, in an academic environment. I have a very supportive partner, an outstanding education, wonderful mentors, and a lot of luck, as I said, of being at the right place at the right time. And I've had excellent collaborators and trainees over the years. So what's my advice to to you in the room? Mentors, find one or more mentor. They don't have to be the same in your field. You could have more than one mentor, one in your field and one not. Um, And your needs from the mentors might change and so you might find other people to mentor you over the the course of time. Network, network, network. This is really important to learn how to do it, sort of get over the um, social anxieties that one faces and, and learn how to network. Um, I think this was said earlier, try not to burn bridges. You just never know when people turn up again. I was on a PhD committee for somebody who's now (laughs) heads one of the most well-funded parts of the US government Department of Health. (laughs) Um, In today's world, your first job is not necessarily going to be your last job. Um, And so I've made it a policy to keep a list in my desk of things I like about my job, things I don't like, things I wished I'd known before so that if you're in the position of negotiating another job, you don't make the same mistakes again. Um, At least you learn to ask those. You'll find a whole new set of things, but at least those things you can address. Um, Changing jobs comes with some risks um, and challenges, but it can be very invigorating. Um, Before we moved here to this set of jobs, I talked to people who had changed careers, changed jobs at my stage, um, and many people just found it really invigorated their their science. So looking back, I'd say if you keep an open mind and are open to new challenges, you don't know where you'll end up. Could be at the other end of the world. Thank
1: you. And finally, Professor Megan Menzi, was going to animate the Q and A. Uh, Siri, she's the director, Deputy Director of the Centre for Stem Cell uh, System in our school, also Head of Engagement Ethics Policy Program at Stem Cell Australia, and uh, she's combined her extensive technical expertise in stem cell research with an interest in complex ethical social and regulatory issues associated with stem cells in research and in the clinic, and she's been an author, one of the best-authored books in Australian sociology, which has been, uh, had a lot of awards and also prestigious international awards for work on ethics, human ethics, education, law and community awareness about stem cell research.
0: Hello there, podcast listener. As Megan Munsey is about to go on stage, I want to remind you the title of this event is My Brilliant Career inspired by the novel by Stella Marie Sarah Miles-Franklin.
6: I want to reflect a little bit about the the woman whose book we've stolen the title of for tonight's proceedings. So that is Stella Maria Sarah Miles-Franklin. So you might well recognise uh, perhaps the book, maybe you read it quite some time ago, or you saw the film that actually came out in 1979, uh, which I was a bit surprised about when I looked it up. Or maybe you've heard about the Miles Franklin Prize or the Stella Literary Prize that's also in her honour. Uh, what I think I wanted to do was remind you a little bit of the plot, but not spend much time talking about its literary merits or not, Um if you remember, Sibylia is the heroine in the story and she's marooned in the Australian bush. She has dreams of becoming a famous writer, despite the long odds and the opposition of her family. However, what I found really compelling about the story of the publication of this novel is that when Miles Franklin wrote it, she was 19. She submitted it to publication in the late... 1890s, and it was rejected. But she didn't stop there. She didn't let that deter her. She wrote to a lot of of famous Australian writers and editors and asked them for help. The person who answered her was Henry Lawson, a famous Australian writer and publisher uh, and uh, editor. And why he answered or responded to her quest was that he read her description of bush life and the scenery and it resonated with him as the truest he'd ever read. Although he also said, quote, he didn't really get the girlishly emotional parts of the book. Um, (laughs) He then showed the the manuscript to his his Scottish publishers and I suppose the rest is history. Um, I just want to make a side note and say that when the book was published, the publishers asked for some uh, redactions around her criticisms of the empirical England, I suppose, at the time, uh, and also removed the sardonic question mark that was in the title of the book, which I think is actually quite interesting and perhaps changes how we reflect on it. Anyway, so now I wanted to turn to the panel because I think that's a lovely story of uh, what we've kind of reinforced, what we've heard uh, from many of the panellists tonight around the need to ask for help. And I think, um, obviously, uh, Stella did that. Um, and I think we, we are giving the advice that you should be asking for help. But how do you do that? What grabs your attention? So for Henry, it was the pros. For you, what you, you must get lots of inquiries. What resonates with you? Cathy?
3: Yes. I just love enthusiasm. I, I think that, particularly with younger people, uh, they're often scared to approach you, mm-hmm. so I really admire anyone that will overcome their their reticence or their fear, um, and will make an appointment or come up to me, um, and uh, and just and just talk and talk about uh, what they want. I think one of my favourite instances was when I was in Sydney and I gave a talk. Um, at the, one of the other children's hospitals in Sydney. And I was talking about my work in neuromuscular disease. And at the end of that, one of the young doctors there came up to me and just looked at me and said, I want your job. <laughs> and she's now the head of a major neurology department. <laughs> Not so far away. <laughs> you know, I would always stand up. And when I was talking to the medical students coming through every term, And say, please, if you're interested in a career in paediatrics or in research, come and talk to me. And you know, maybe one or two a term, if that.
0: Hi, Andy Hulvath, here again. Buffy Gorilla and I dived into the crowd afterwards, and here's what they thought. What was something that delighted you tonight?
7: Um, something that really delighted me tonight was hearing people talk about the
2: struggles that they went through and like the hardships that they and how they overcame challenges throughout their careers. Because that's really inspiring to be interested in um, sciences and wanting to go do something similar and having that support that um, that people have gone through the same thing. I also think um, like the passion that they showed and the
7: enthusiasm um, really delighted me and it made me really excited to see people um, feeling the same way about um, similar jobs that I'm interested in potentially in the future as well. So yeah, that was really
0: Now you two are wearing school uniforms. Where are you from? Um, we're from Sacre in Glenaris. Yeah. And what year are you in?
7: Year 11. Yeah.
0: So what's some advice you might give to your fellow Year 11s at school tomorrow that weren't here tonight?
2: I would probably give them the advice to not be dictated by the pressures of society and the norms that people are like stimulated by, but rather like what interests you and what works for you in following your passions and like working hard to achieve what you want to achieve.
4: Yes,
7: yeah, similarly, so just... If you have passion for something, just to go for it and not let anything get in your way or stop you and um, even though there might be setbacks, to just like continue trying until you reach your position that you want to be in.
0: Ladies, you were fabulous. (laughs) Thank (laughs) you. What did you take home from tonight?
6: Um, I think the main thing I took home was there are lots of different pathways that you can take. So no one, even though they had plans, they didn't end up taking those plans. And I think international and moving experiences as well, they all seem to move different locations. And that's something that I always am scared to do and jump out of my comfort zone. And so that was a little bit of affirming to be like, you can go and then come back as well and bring new experiences to the table.
0: And what's some advice you might share with someone tomorrow that you heard here tonight?
6: Ooh, um, I think a really big one that was brought up was um, enjoying the challenges and embracing choices and sometimes they're not going to go well but you know, you always have a choice and to weigh up those pros and cons and then come back another day um, and start again and try something new so, oh,
3: hello. hello, who are you? Uh, my name is Mallory
0: yeah.
3: um,
4: Probably the main thing that I learnt was the importance of mentorship and um, yeah, of kind of learning from those people that are already in the industry um, and kind of picking their brains and getting their, their knowledge and their insight into what it is that makes a successful career and what it is to be successful even, yeah.
0: And what's some advice you'll share that you got out of tonight with someone who wasn't here?
4: I think similar to Jackie, definitely um, embracing the challenges and embracing um, the unexpected in your career and not necessarily having a having to have a path set um, at the get-go of your career.
0: Tell me, what did you get out of tonight?
7: Um, I just found it really interesting listening to them talking about, so Catherine, she had really good plans, but then a lot of the other ones spoke about really taking opportunities that came to you and really having confidence in yourself that you're going to maybe not get those opportunities that will all work out in the end and that everything kind of happens for a reason and you've got to grasp what comes
0: your way. What was the take-home message for you? It was just overall so inspiring and amazing to hear all these stories that I can do anything. Um, Research I was a bit unsure about at the beginning, and now I'm like, I I can take the world, so maybe research is what I want to do, yeah. Hello, what's your first name and what do you do? Uh, My name's Jane and I'm Deputy Dean of the Faculty of MDHS. You're the right person to ask. What's some advice that you might share with some female colleagues back in the lab or back in the office tomorrow?
4: Well,
7: I think the message I got from tonight was that, you know, anything's possible. Keep an open mind and, uh, you know, follow your passion.
0: Hello, Jackie. I notice you've got a school uniform on. What's your school uniform?
2: Um, Well, it's a dress and a blazer from Ivan O'Grammer.
0: Now, you've come to tonight to listen to these female scientists. What's a take-home message for you?
7: Well, definitely that there are a lot of
2: challenges in whatever field you end up choosing, but there are always ways to overcome those challenges and to succeed in your given field.
0: And what advice might you share with some of your friends tomorrow at school?
2: Um, Definitely just go for it. Follow your passion and put in all that you can, put in the hard work, put in the long yards, and you'll get the outcome that you want.
0: Oh, Jackie, I hope I get to interview you when you're a famous scientist or researcher or whatever you do with your science. Do you think you'll follow on in a science line?
2: Um, I'm definitely interested in it, either that, biomed or science, but it's definitely one of my passions, and helping people out is definitely something that I've always had as a child, so it would be lovely to continue on with that.
0: Yes, Jackie's got the answers. And what
2: year are you in, Jackie? Um, I'm in year 12 now, so final stretch.
0: (laughs) What was your take-home message for tonight?
4: It really doesn't matter if you don't have a definite plan as to what to do. So there's so many opportunities out there. You've got to be open to them all. You do have to sometimes gird your loins and go in where you might actually be a bit scared to go in. Um, but, and that is sometimes harder for women. But you've got to have the belief and take the opportunities when they present themselves.
7: What is your idea of a brilliant career?
2: I think a brilliant career is really one that you define yourself and it has many twists and turns and it has serendipity uh, so that you don't necessarily know where it's going to lead uh, but that it is something that you can pursue with passion Uh, and I think there was some lovely advice tonight about collaboration, working with people and one particular thing I think is really important is actually the concept of sponsorship particularly for young women who do have career interruptions that they have senior people that actually give them a seat at the table because I think often women can shine at the table they just sometimes need to be given that seat at the table.
7: Were there any tweets that you saw that you were really inspired by?
2: Um, yeah, so one of the young researchers in the crowd asked a question um, about uh, to the panellists and I think that something that really resonated is that she challenged the answer on Twitter which she said... Um, it was true, but unfortunately I still encounter so many men who are completely oblivious to the struggles of women in STEM. Great to have male champions for change, but we need more. We need to be cheerleaders for each other. So that actually got quite a good response on Twitter, and I think for a young female researcher to be um, brave enough uh, to say something like that is, um, is excellent, and I guess that it shows that our future is in good hands. Thank you.
0: Pleasure. Listeners, as a science experiment, we asked a few people prior to the event what their expectations were. And what is your idea of a brilliant career?
3: Uh, a career where you wake up every day and you're just buzzing with excitement and wanting to go forth.
7: And Does that exist?
4: Yeah, I think it does. I've seen it in people when their eyes just light up and it's not work, it's passion.
7: Uh, For me, a brilliant career is obviously doing something you like and for me that means helping people and obviously making your mark in the
4: world and advancing humanity, um, whether that be with technology, uh, within the health field or just understanding the world more.
7: And what is your idea of a brilliant career for you? For me, it's something where I can learn more every day, I'm doing something different and I'm helping others. And is there any particular speaker that you're excited to hear from tonight? Um, I'm excited to hear from everyone and hear all their different perspectives. Hi, I'm Renata um, and I came here today just because I'm very new to science. I'm only an honours student, so I kind of just want to see what's out there and like especially for women in the workplace. Renata, what is your idea of a brilliant career? I think just contributing something new to society and just like at the end of the day, just going home and being happy with what you've accomplished. That for me is perfect. And is there any particular speaker you're extra excited to hear from this evening? This is just such a new experience for me that, yeah, I'm just open for everything.
0: Not only were expectations met, but honest insights were energising. It was the welcome inspiration to the next generation of women in science, technology, engineering, maths and medicine. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on the 7th of March, 2019. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Production by Andy Horvath, Buffy Gorilla and Arch Cuthbertson eavesdrop on experts is licensed under creative commons copyright 2019 the university of melbourne hey review us on itunes and share the link oh and check out the rest of the episodes in our archive i'm andy and we're celebrating international women's day with you